Okay, today is August the 9th, 2012, and we'll prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to be here. We pray that we will make the most of it by concentrating on your mighty word. We can file it into long-term memory and be usable for when we're on the front lines. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Do you all remember me talking about James? The guy that is in the little booth at the gas station at Walmart. Remember I tell you about some of the things? Well, when I left here Tuesday night, I went to get gas and guess who was there? <laughs> and it wasn't really crowded. Usually there's, uh, it was later at night. So <clears throat> when I went up to the booth, I said, Hey, James, how are you doing? He says, I'm doing fine. It's a hot night, isn't it? I said, Yeah. I said, What about this business of salvation and works? See, you don't have much time. You've got to jump right to the issue. And he said, Well, you know, I've been thinking about that. And, uh, you know, I know it just seems like you still got to have works. I said, James. I said, do you know what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is? I gave it to you twice. Uh, what's that? I said, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He said, oh. I said, remember I gave you Romans six twenty three, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh. I said, James... Do you have to work for a gift? He says, no. I said, so this is saying what? He said, uh, are you saying that you don't have to work for salvation? I said, no, James, the Bible is saying it. <laughs> and you could see the wheels turning. He said, oh, oh, oh. And I said, James, let me ask you something. I said, have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ to pay for your sins? Have you trusted in Him in order to get to heaven that He paid your sins? Yes, sir. I said, well, listen to this verse. See how verses, you need the, you need the verses. John 3.36. John 3.36 says, He who believes on the Son has eternal life. I said, did you hear that, James? Let me give it to you again. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. I said, now you just told me you believe in Jesus Christ. I said, James, what do you have? And he went, eternal life. I said, that's right. And he, I mean, he was, his eyes were getting wide open. And the people were backing up behind me. You know, they, they were <laughs> shuffling around. And I turned around and I, before I left, I said, James, that is the good news. So I left it there with him, and I'm going to see next time I go there what he says. Did you see, Michael? Oh, you did? Oh. <laughs> All right. Do you have that mic? 
Right there. Give it to Mike and let him say one more time in case they didn't get it on the Internet what James said. James is the guy that's in the little booth at Walmart. And, that, and say what you said again. Make sure they heard it. Okay. I got, whoa. <laughs> I, I got there about an, an, an hour later. Can you uh -huh. hear that? Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and as soon as I walked up there, he says, it's not by works. <laughs> and he was excited. And I said, I said, that's right, it's not by works. It's, it, salvation is, is by grace. Uh -huh. and, and I quoted to him uh, John 6, 47, uh -huh. which is truly, truly, I, I, I say unto you, he who believes in me has eternal uh -huh. life. Yeah. And uh, I can't remember, I quoted some other scriptures yeah. to him as well, it, it's, that it's a gift. Did he look a little animated? Oh, he, yes, he did. Very animated. It's like he got it. So, and, and I wanted to call you that night, but I got distracted. But, I was, but, but, but uh, yeah, he got it. Oh, so, you know, I thought, you can tell when somebody is, the wheels are turning. But this goes to show you, I've talked to him at least four or five times. I've talked to you before about talking to him. I even gave these verses to him and wrote them down and gave them to him and told him to look at it. And when I went there Tuesday night, I don't know. I still think it's about working. And you just got to keep hammering sometime until you'll know when they when they accept it, when they get well, it. Another thing I said to them is that we don't deserve it, and mm -hmm. that's grace. Mm -hmm. That we can't earn it or deserve it. That's why it's a gift. And, and I and I quoted to them what what you had said months back. You mm -hmm. quoted to somebody else that. Uh, you know, God's mercy is, is, is God not giving us what we do deserve, uh -huh. and His grace is giving us what we don't deserve. Yeah. He goes, that's right. We don't deserve it. <laughs> he says, it's a gift. He's, I, said, I, said, I said, that's right. He says, he says Jesus, he said, that gives to Jesus Christ. I said, that's right. <laughs> if you would have been there an hour earlier, you would have heard the same thing. I don't know. I don't well, think it's in the Word. Don't tell me that there later. isn't power in the Word. I mean, it got into his soul. I could see it. What is he, about 27, 30, 30-ish? 25 and 30, somewhere along in that. And he's got a little Bible. He's always reading his Bible. But something clicked right then. I could tell. And I had quite an evening that night because then I went to H-E-B. <laughs> and you never know. See, you always have to be ready. I went to H-E-B, and I was in there getting groceries, and when I come out, I'm fixing to get in my truck, and this guy walks up to me. He's about the same age as James. He's about 27 years old. And he said, uh, Sir, do you, do you have uh, some spare money that I could use in order to get something to eat? And I just said, Well, what do you need, what do you need that for? What do you need money to eat for? And he started telling me about his situation. He had just gotten out of jail. He didn't have anybody around, no family, no friends or anything. And he literally didn't have any money. He, was just, he told me he was sitting over there on the bench at Walmart looking at different people, really being hungry and not knowing exactly what he should do or what he should say. So I said, well, um, let me ask you some questions. First of all, I gave him some money. And I said, let me ask you some questions. I said, uh, are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? He said, well, I'll go, yeah, I'll go to a church over here. Uh, I think he said Liberty Church. I, I used, I, sometimes I go there. 
I said, I didn't ask you what church you went to. I asked you, are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? He said, yes, I am. I said, well, that's, that's good. I said, then what you need to do, instead of being so afraid and all, is start praying to the God of the universe that has everything under control and ask Him for protection and provision. And he said that he had bought a bicycle and he pointed it was leaning against the wall at H-E-B over there. He said he bought it for $10 and he had a cell phone, a cell phone that still worked, had minutes on it. And he went to Walmart and got a uh, plug-in charger. And so he had, he had a phone also. And I just started asking him questions about um, how, did you, how did you get into this shape? I mean, you, you, it just doesn't happen overnight that you're homeless, no money, not even, don't even know where your next meal is coming. And he was, he was giving me this information. I, and one of the things he said, he said, you know, he said, I didn't know what to do and I don't want to steal. I said, you better not steal. I said, don't do something stupid. I said, that'll just get you back in jail. Besides, how's the Lord going to help you if you're asking Him for protection and provision and you're out stealing? That's a guaranteed way of showing that you're not trusting Him anyway. I said, what you need to do is ask Him to take care of your needs. I said, now that's enough money to get you through tonight. You might be able to find some cheap place to stay in or something. And he said, well, tomorrow he was going to go to that church and find out if there was, you know, he had a few people that he knew there that might could help him out. I said, okay, well, I'm going to call you tomorrow to see if everything's squared away. See if I, I just want to see if he needed more help. Of course, he, he said that um, it was unusual for someone just to talk to him because people are, really, they're afraid of him. He had tattoos and all this type of thing, and People are afraid of that, and there's con people out there. And I said, I can understand that. But um, anyway, to make a, a long story short, uh, I called him yesterday after we had young people's class. And uh, he answered the phone. I told him who I was. He said, oh! He's, and he sounded completely different than he did before. He said, you won't believe what happened. And I was thinking, yeah, I know God's involved. I figured something was going to happen. He, he found some guy in downtown area that had a, uh, some kind of business, I think it had to do with automobiles, and gave him a job and is putting him up until he can get back on his feet. And I said, hmm, how about that? He said, let me tell you something. That's no accident. He said, I prayed ten times last night. And I said, see what happens when you trust the Lord? Anyway, it was, you never know when these things are going to take place. Uh, he was in jail for not paying tickets. He had uh, too many tickets. And that, it, that was a story in itself. I mean, uh, I found out today. I was afraid that uh, I called the, the jail to find out if they knew who he was, if he gave me the right name, and if he had been in jail. They said, well, yes, uh, he, he was here, and uh, he was here June the 7th. But he told me that he had just got out the day before. And so when I was talking to him, I called him on that. I said, didn't you tell me that you just got out? 
the day before, which would be what, August the 5th or something like that, on a Monday? And he said, yes. I said, well, they told me that last record they have you there was June the 7th. He said, that's when I went in, not when I got out. I said, oh. See, so we can't just jump to conclusions either. I'll tell you this. His name is Jeremy. So we all need to keep Jeremy in our prayers. Because I told him, you know, you, you, you probably made some bad decisions to get to the point that you're there where you have nothing. And now the Lord has put some people in your way to help you. And you need to change your attitude, change your thinking, and start depending on the Lord. And you got a new chance. Don't blow it. And he needs prayer, so we need all pray for him. Okay? All right, let's get cracking here on our lesson tonight. I might hear a story from y'all after next time I see you about what happens to you. Isn't it exciting to see the Lord work right, you know, firsthand? Wonderful. Okay, we are in getting the gospel right. We ended last time on a place where I said we're going to look at some. Uh, objections with regards to limited and unlimited atonement. This is our, our subject matter. And we're going to look at some of the things that uh, have been presented. By the way, this is all from Volume 9, Conservative Theological Journal, was in 05, page 256 through 257, Fort Worth, Texas, Tyndale, Tyndale Theological Seminary. Now, all that is where I got this information here about these objections, and they all have to do with the difference between limited and unlimited atonement. Now, I'm going to say again, this is not some peripheral issue. This is fundamental heart of what we see God to be, what we see Him to be like, and... With regards to the gospel, that's why I put it here. Because if you are into Reformed theology, then you have a skewed view of the gospel and you don't have it right. There are some huge uh, heresies in this, and this is why we're dealing with it, so we can help them see the truth of the Word and not be fooled ourselves. So, there are three objections that are often raised in opposition to the doctrine of unlimited atonement, which is the, doc, the, the view that we hold. But they are easily answered. The first objection that a, someone in limited atonement would suggest is, if Christ died for those who go to hell, what benefit have they from his death? Now, that's their objection. The answer. We could just as well ask, what good did the bitten Israelites obtained from the brazen serpent to which they refused to look in Numbers 21, verses 8 through 9. And the answer is what? None. No benefit. But nevertheless, God received the glory for being a God generous enough to make provision for them. That's the issue, you see. In no way is God demeaned. In no way does God lose His sovereignty in no way do we get the upper hand or ascendancy over God by rejecting the gospel. And these people who reject the, the gospel had a potential 
benefit. But we could say in just street language, they blew it by rejecting Christ. So the answer to that, of course, is um, they would get no benefit from it. And, and in the Calvinist mind, it's hard for them to understand that because they think that they... If I used to think this way, so I know it's hard to articulate, but they, they see everything through the filter of sovereignty. And they think if any way that God... Uh, in Jesus Christ, who is God, went to the cross and died for uh, mankind, and there are certain ones that reject that, that somehow that minimizes his power. Somehow he, it would make him not really sovereign. And again, I say over and over, it's not an issue of power. It's not an issue of sovereignty. It's an issue of love and grace and mercy. The second objection if salvation has been made for all, how can any go to hell? Pardon? Oh, did I say salvation? Excuse me. Thank you. If, well, I guess I better put these on. I have them. Let's see. How do I manage this with this here? How about that? Okay. <clears throat> if satisfaction has been made for all, how can any go to hell? This is another uh, argument they have. You understand their argument. If Christ died for the sins of all man, then men, then how can any go to hell? Answer, God has provided atonement for all, but He has stipulated that this atonement becomes effective only for those who exercise faith in Christ. Now, that's not hard to understand. God provided salvation for all mankind, but there is a stipulation that they receive that free gift of eternal life through faith in Christ. If they reject Christ, they don't get the eternal life, and God's justice demands that they be sent to the lake of fire. He had a remedy. They rejected it, and so they get what they deserve. Deliverance from doom depends not on the atonement alone. That's real important. It's not on the atonement alone, but on the reception of it. It is a fact that human beings can starve in the presence of a free feast if they refuse to partake of it. And it's the same thing with salvation, with eternal life. God has offered it. It's free. It's for the taking for anyone. But it must be received. Apart from being received, then there is no, there is no other way. There's no other way of salvation. Am I going too fast? Y'all sticking with me? Okay. Number three. Objection number three. Why would God have Christ die for those whom He, in His omniscience, knew would never receive His provision? Answer. We could just as easily ask a similar question in regards to numerous other events in Scripture. For example, why did God send Noah to preach to his contemporaries if He knew that they would not listen? 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, Noah preached for 120 years, and you know how many converts he had? Well, I don't think they were converts. I think they were part of his family, and may, I, I don't know, maybe he converted the eight. I, eight, then, is the total in 120 years, and they were his family. I don't know about you, but if I preached for 120 years, the only people that I got to receive anything that I was preaching 
was from just my immediate family, I, I think I'd be a little depressed. I think I, the rejection would finally get to me, but he was faithful. He continued to preach. So, why did he do that? Because this is real important that you get this. Why did Noah preach 120 years? He sent Noah to preach. He commanded him to preach to all these reprobates that God knew would not accept the gospel, but he was commanded to do it anyway. Why did God do that? Because God is omniscient. And God knew in the future that his own son, Jesus Christ, would go to the cross, and when he went to the cross, he would pay for the sins of all these reprobates. Whether they accepted it or not, still God is gracious. We have a gracious God. That's why he did it, because they had the opportunity. They can't point the finger at God and say, no, you can't say that uh, we're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire um, because you didn't, pre you didn't uh, prepare a way for us. You, you didn't provi provide an out for us. No, God provided the out. Noah was preaching the gospel of grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. <clears throat> Christ hadn't been born yet, but uh, the, he, the Messiah. By the way, where's the first mention of a Savior in the Bible? 3.15, right. So the, the, the promise had already been made, and Noah preached all this time. Here's another question. Why did God send the prophets to preach to the rebellious Israelites, knowing that on many of those occasions they would refuse to listen? Isn't, wasn't that the norm? That God gave the Israelites the law. He gave them all this grace. They're His chosen people. He did all these things for Him. And what was the what was the mission of the Israelites? What did God intend for them to do? Yeah, evangelize. They were his evangelizing agent for the entire world. And how did they fare at that? Huh? <laughs> Miserable. What happened? They would get around these pagans, and they started adopting all the customs of the pagans. They even got into... Uh, idolatry and all these other things. And so God would send a prophet to him. And he would say, okay, you got off course. You better get right or I'm going to bring down the hammer. And, and knowing, God know, knew that they weren't going to, to change. And yet he sent the prophet anyway. And why is that? Because we have a gracious, loving merciful God. Even when he knows that a person isn't going to accept it, he still gives them the, the gospel. So, as he says in Romans chapter 1, they are without excuse. <clears throat> the fact is, God made a provision for all the people because he is a benevolent God. That's the point. He's a benevolent God to who? Everyone, not just the elect. Now, there is no clear reference to limited atonement in the Bible, period. It is an inference from a system of theology that was known as Reformed theology. Now, I'm, I'm just 
reading what I found in this journal. And we have some bullet points here. The first bullet point, these are the reasons that um, limited atonement is not scriptural. First point, it runs contrary to many explicit statements of Scripture. Remember when we went to all these verses that had the world in it? Uh, uh, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, especially those who believe. Uh, God would have all men to be saved. Uh, we have, uh, for He is the propitiation, not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. It goes on and on. So many of them like that. And what this is saying, to say that He's not the Savior of the whole world, but just of the elect. When you take the words whosoever and world and everyone and you try to minimize them and you try to restrict them, then what you're doing is going contrary to explicit statements of Scripture. What's happening is you have to add words in Scripture in order to verify a theology. Second point, second bullet. It depends upon a departure from the normal grammatical historical interpretation and so ought not to be held by dispensationalists because we go from a literal grammatical historical interpretation. And when you have to start adding words in, it's, it's no, that's, that's no longer the case. In making the atonement, the only instrument of securing our salvation, the only instrument of securing our salvation, it makes salvation through faith virtually meaningless. It looks like I left something out of there. I got it wrong. Uh, the, the main thing that he's trying to say here is that it makes the instrument of securing our salvation the atonement itself and when you do that you leave out the receiving of the atonement which is faith and that's what he's talking about of uh, making faith virtually meaningless when Jesus Christ went to the cross died for all the sins of all mankind that act saved no one it has to be received. And what the Calvinists do is only emphasize what this point is saying. The instrument of securing our salvation, they say, is the cross. Now, that's true. It is the only instrument of uh, our salvation. But the instrument in and of itself doesn't save anyone. It has to be received. And that's where the Calvinists have a hard time because they say, you're totally depraved. You can't receive it. And so they make the instrument itself the way of salvation. Am I getting through? Okay. By making saving faith an effect rather than a condition of salvation, limited atonement, faces the philosophical problem of having God choose to provide salvation for less souls than he could have. This runs the Reformed believer into serious trouble when dealing with the problem of evil and, good, and the goodness of God. When, you're looking, when it says, by making saving faith a, a, an effect... Uh, 
rather than a condition of salvation. Uh, making saving faith an effect means that it's part and parcel of, of, of God's uh, way of salvation. In other words, <clears throat> faith is a condition of salvation. Faith is not part of the instrument of salvation on the cross. You see, what the Calvinist does is he, have to ta- he has to take the faith that you cannot have, according to them, no one can have because they're totally depraved. And God has to infuse that into the people that he chooses to save. In that way, it's an effect rather than a condition. You, you begin to understand that? It is a, faith is a, condi- a condition. It's not part of the atonement. Two separate things. And they can't make it two separate things because if they did, it would mean you would have volition and you wouldn't be totally depraved and you could choose whether you're going to accept the gospel or not and they would say that would mean God isn't God, He's not sovereign, so it couldn't be that way. I see no hands, so I'm going to move on. It rides roughshod over all the standard reference works in its singular definition of the word cosmos as the elect. Now, what this is talking about, remember all the dictionaries and lexicons and encyclopedias, all these uh, go-to works that scholars and theologians and pastors go to when they're studying, always has cosmos as the world. Never the elect of the world. And so this, he's saying they're running roughshod over the standard reference works. All these lexicons, encyclopedias, and uh, dictionaries and so forth. And it's singular. All these have the definition of world that we all understand. For God so loved the world. Who is that talking about? It's talking about the inhabitants of planet earth. It can mean, sometimes the world can mean the planet itself and so forth, but we, it's clear when you read John 3.16, for God so loved the world, you understand that's the totality of humanity. That's the way it's understood. That's the way people take it. That's the way it is in the dictionaries. But, you see, that doesn't work with regards to the Calvinistic thinking. They have to say, no, that means the world of the elect. Well, they're constraining something that all, the, all these works, these scholarly works say, no, it's not restricted. The whole idea of saying world is mean it's unrestricted. The next bullet. If, if Christ only died for the elect, then we can't tell the unsaved person who may be the non-elect that God loves him and that Christ died for him. John 3.16 may not refer to him. Do you understand what I'm saying? One thing that a Calvinist cannot do is go to an unbeliever and say, God loves you. Jesus Christ went to the cross and paid for your sins and you can receive eternal life by believing in Him. They can't say that because they don't know who's elect and who's not when they're talking to a stranger. If I was a Calvinist, I could have never gone to James and say, James, look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's a free gift. 
Romans 6.23, it's a free gift. It's pertaining to you, James. All you have to do is believe, no works, and you'll have eternal life. If I was a Calvinist, I couldn't tell him that because I don't know if he's one of the elect or not. Even if a person claims that they're elect, a Calvinist isn't really sure because they could be fooling themselves. They could only think that they believed. Maybe they had a head belief and not a heart belief, and they're not really saved anyway. A, a Calvinist doesn't even know for sure if he is saved or not. There is no biblical ground for a person who is of the Calvinistic persuasion to have any assurance that he is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and that he has eternal life. What would it be? It can't be that they say, well, I, I know that I'm, a, I'm, a, um, I'm one of the elect because I believe in Jesus Christ. Oh, no, no, wait a minute. You can't believe in Jesus Christ. What do you, you mean, are you telling me you had free will? No, you didn't have free will. The only way that they know if they're elect or not is not by the Scripture that says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because they can't believe. The only way they can know is that did God infuse into me? Did He regenerate me so that I can have faith? Am I one of the elect? Is that why I have faith? Because He infused this in me? They cannot tell. They cannot be certain. They always go to what? Works. They try to convince themselves. Because they, the, the um, perseverance of the saints, they have to persevere. And that's what they're trying to do is to persevere to convince themselves that they're elect because they can't go on God's promise. They can't go on the promise that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved because they can't believe. Yes, Cindy. That. Uh, it was also thousands. All these thousands are elect. What is Christ on the only they totally honest with their? They would ask, and I didn't know who you were, and I got. I might have some good. You might be one of the ones that cried. Anything otherwise would not. You it the God, and how can you tell some you don't know whether they're God for their sins? They might not be there. I mean, this is the thing Calvinist. We came back him, her Calvinist, uh, and died and was resurrected. But did you say Yes, because it wasn't just. Yes. Where's it? Where's the deal? No, you got to have it. We need somebody that is their regular deal to... Yeah, here. Okay. There you go. <laughs> got just around. Mike, what's the purpose of even them sending missionaries to foreign lands? Well, what they would say is that people, the elect out there need to hear the gospel. So, but that really... <coughs> 
See, if you have, our, our next point is the I in TULIP, which is irresistible grace. It's irresistible. They're going to get the grace. They're going to be saved no matter what. So it doesn't make that much sense. It, it, the issue isn't so much as just giving the gospel out to people. The issue is what is their gospel? I, 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 if you give the gospel and you leave out God's love and His mercy and His compassion for you and that He died for your, your sins on the cross, if you can't tell someone that, you're not telling the gospel. You're leaving the main thing out. And I don't know when I go out and I talk, talk to people, the guy I met, met Tuesday night, when I gave him the gospel, I couldn't say that Christ died for his sins on the cross because I don't know if he's not elect. And that's the heart of the gospel. Leave the cross out of the gospel and you have a false gospel. So that's what we're dealing with here in this point. Isn't this interesting? Doesn't it make you think? huh? See, the problem with so many Christians is they don't know what other people are thinking. They don't know what a, what a Catholic or a Mormon or a, a Muslim or a Jehovah Witness or a Calvinist or maybe a Universalist. They've never been trained or taught where they're coming from. And so what we're seeing here is the mindset of a Calvinist, and they have some really huge problems. Again, if limited atonement is true, then plainly the non-elect person, when he rejects Christ, is actually doing God's will. How then can God justly condemn him? Because the, the, the uh, Calvinists say, it's 1 Timothy chapter 2, I think it's verse 4 or 10, says... Uh, God would have all men to be saved. And the Calvinist said, Oh, whoa, 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 that's all kinds of men. Not all men. Not all men without exception. It's all men without distinction. You know, he, uh, black men, white men, red men, uh, poor men, rich men. That's what that means, is what they say. Okay, so what are they doing? They're saying that it's not God's will to save everyone, right? Okay, so we're just taking that premise that they've given us and we say we're asking a question. If, if limited atonement is true, then plainly non-elect persons, uh, the, the non-elect person when he rejects Christ is actually doing his will. It's not God's will to save this person because he chose not to give him the grace to believe. He chose Christ not to die for his sins, right? It does not, not, doesn't that follow? Okay, if that's the case... If he is actually doing God's will, then how, how then can God justly condemn him for doing something that God has willed? Sticky for some. Well, yeah. You, so you can't argue on one side when you have the Scripture, God would have all men to be saved. And saying, no, that's not everyone. That's just different types of men. And then say, okay, if God didn't will all men to be saved, it means the ones that aren't saved, He didn't will to be saved. So according to this, uh, when someone rejects the gospel, he's doing God's will. And then how could God justly turn around and condemn him for doing God's will? 
Another way to put it is this way. Is if a, if a, if a non-elect person, if, 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 if Jesus Christ did not die for the non-elect, He didn't choose to, to die. God did not allow Christ to die for their sins. And God withholds the grace that He needs in order to believe then how can God condemn this person for not accepting Christ, which he didn't offer to begin with and didn't give him the grace in order to believe it? How could God justly condemn someone like that? See, these are the questions. Remember I said how important questions are? These are the questions that we need to be asking someone who has blinders of Reformed theology on them. This will be the last one. It makes John 3.16, 1 Timothy 2, 4-6, 2 Peter 3.9 and so forth, read as pointless tautologies. <laughs> Told you they have these big words. T-A-U-T, it probably would be tautologies. T-A-U-T-O-L-O-G-I-S. It means needless repetition of an idea, especially in words other than those of the immediate context. And I got that definition from Wikipedia. Y'all ever go to Wikipedia? We have some computer people in here that go there. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, by the way, before we end. First Timothy chapter two. Look at verse 3. This is a good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Savior. Now, um, put a circle around 4 and 5. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, men, the man, Jesus, Christ Jesus. Look at verse 6 who gave himself a ransom for all. The testimony became at the proper time. Who gave himself a ransom for what? Oh, that's all the elect. See? That's when you're, that's when you're revising Scripture. That's what, that was one of the verses that we were looking at there. And you all know John 3.16. Let's see what Second Peter three nine says. You know, you go towards the back of your Bible for Second Peter. Second <clears throat> Peter chapter three verse nine. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but to, for all to come to repentance. 
Well, it really what it really means is not wishing for any of the elect to perish, but for all of the elect to come to repentance. Now, it makes you just shake your head, doesn't it? And then the Bible says God is love. God is merciful. He's just. He's compassionate. And you say, how can this be restricted to only a select group and God be less than what the Bible says He is? And they go into the hiding place of mystery. Well, it's just a mystery. And there are no telling. I don't know how many people are trapped into this delusion of God not loving everyone. If the doctrine of the doctrines of reformed theology are true, God does not love everyone. He purposely sent Christ to the cross only for those he chose to save. And he withholds grace from everyone else. And this supposedly brings him glory and it, he does it because it bring, it, it's, he does it of his good pleasure is what the Calvinists say. Do you see why I'm spending this much time? We can't just pass by and not be prepared to ask the questions to unmask this deception. These people are, uh, they look at God and they don't see the God that we do. And they have no way of having any assurance of their salvation. None. They're not our enemies. They are the people that we need to pray for and reach out and not just debate and try to win an argument, but to ask them the questions that, will, that God can use to go into their soul so that they can see the spiritual blindness that they've accepted. Well, I've got some real dillies that are, that, are, that are next. They're not, you know, these aren't brain teasers, but when you come to this class, be ready to be challenged with your thinking because that's what I want you to do is for you to think these things through for me to give you these questions so that you can filter it through your own soul and recognize what the truth is so you'll be able to do the same to those that you come in contact with just by asking these kind of questions. Let's close. Father, we thank You for this time You've given us to feed upon Your mighty Word. The more that we delve into it, the greater You appear. The more benevolent, the more loving, the more merciful, the more just magnificent in every way. This is the way that we want to present you to everyone and those who say that you would be less than that. We pray that you will help us to remember these things so that we will be able to unburden them with the idea that you are uh, much less than what you are. And we pray that you will enable us to do that for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.